trust the movement, I negate the chaos, uplift the negative, I'll show up at the table again. Welcome to Grassroot Ohio, conversations with everyday people working on important issues here in Columbus and all around Ohio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and today I'm talking with Pam Libby, Julia King, and Lindsay Leyland. Two are native Ohioans, one is native Alaskan. Two migrate to Bristol Bay every June and July, one is there year round. Two are my biological sisters, and one is an activist organizer sister. All three are commercial salmon fishermen or women in the Bristol Bay, and all three stand to stop Pebble Mine. Pam Harding Libby was born and raised in Worthington, Ohio. She moved to Alaska in May, 1978, when she married Jim Libby, a lifelong commercial salmon fisherman from Bristol Bay. She spent the last 42 summers commercial salmon set net fishing on Ecuck Beach in the Nushigak district of Bristol Bay. Next year marks the 60th anniversary of the Libby family fishing together from mid-June to mid-July, harvesting thousands of pounds of salmon, even in the midst of this worldwide pandemic. At 66, she considers herself a badass fisher grandma. She's grateful to be part of her four-generation family fishing business and is optimistic that the fight will prevail. Julia King grew up in Worthington, Ohio, spending summers at Lake Erie. And in 1983, after spending a year teaching in the South Pacific, she flew home through Alaska and worked on the slime line at a salmon processing plant in Dillingham, where her sister spent her summers fishing. The next year, she went back and crewed on a commercial salmon drift boat for the summer and has spent the last 30 years, minus a few, set netting on the beach with Pam and their family. She received her master's in education from the Ohio State University and started teaching in Southern Cal, in Corona, California, where she continues to teach today. Fishing has been her summer job of passion. Lindsay Leyland is from Dillingham, Alaska. She is a lifelong fisherman with a great respect for the waters, lands, and cultures of the Bristol Bay region. She is committed to community engagement and preparing and encouraging our future generations to lead empowered, sustainable, productive lives. She is the Deputy Director of the United Tribes of Bristol Bay. Welcome, all four of you. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> all right, welcome to Grassroots. You all four have a connection with Dillingham, Alaska. So let's just go one by one and hear how did you end up in Dillingham and how did you get involved in the salmon industry? Let's start with you, Lindsay. Yeah, so I actually grew up here in Dillingham. Um, I was born in Anchorage, but I was raised here in Dillingham with my family. And the year that I was born, my parents bought a commercial fishing set net permit. So basically since birth, I've been involved in the commercial fishery and lived here. And my family has, has uh, been involved in subsistence fishing and commercial fishing and hunting and um, a lot of the activities and um, you know, outdoor resources that we have available to us. 
Um, so Dillingham has always been a big part of my life and I've commercially fished here every summer of my life, um, at least since I was a young teenager and super grateful for the opportunity to continue the fishing family business as well as, of course, the advocacy work that I do. And I just wanted to clarify for any folks listening, in the beginning you mentioned that your sisters are Native Ohioans and that I'm a Native Alaskan. And while I am from Alaska, I just want to distinguish for folks that I'm actually not Alaska Native. I have Portuguese and Finnish roots. Um, I'm not an indigenous person to this region. So while I was born and raised here, um, I'm not uh, Native Alaskan in that sense. I understand, thanks. And, how, and you got involved in the um, fishing industry because of family? Yeah, so my dad, of course I worked for my dad as a teenager and through high school and college years um, to, to pay my way through school. And then I was fortunate enough to, in my early 20s, take over the fishing business from him. I bought my own set net skiff and um, kind of started hiring my own crew. And my dad has since kind of retired, semi-retired from the fishing business, and I've taken over for him. And now I work with my brother, who's my fishing partner, and we each operate a, a set net skiff. Actually, just north of, of the Ecock Beach, we fish um, in a stretch called Combine. So... That's where my, uh, my kind of origin from, for fishing came. And then I have participated in other fisheries as well, including some long lining in Area M and some uh, seining in Area M and in Kodiak Island as well. So it's been, um, yeah, fishing's been a big part of my family for, for my whole life. And, um, and my brothers and mine now into adulthood, which is such a pleasure. Nice. How about you, um, Julie? Hmm. Well, fishing and family definitely come uh, hand in hand for me as well. Uh, my sister had come up to Alaska and, and I heard the stories. And when I had an opportunity in 83 to, to fly into uh, Anchorage and then Dillingham, I got an opportunity to, to see the slime line, see the processing of all the, the resources that go all over the world and in food form. And that was a great education. Then I got to be on a drift boat with my brother-in-law and uh, what an experience that was to live the life of a drift fisher woman for a year. And then I uh, got the greatest opportunity of going on to the beach and set netting with my sister Pam and her young boys at the time. And they've grown up and now are, are uh, grown men fishermen and um, got to fish on, on the beach in Ecuck got to bring up my kids when they were a baby and, and then as, as uh, young kids. And, and my son now gets to drift in, in uh, the Nushigak as well. And uh, so my experience has been um, because of family, because of connections and the love I have for being off the grid and experiencing the tundra and the amazing um, uh, tides that uh, the Nush provides. Excellent. And you, Pam, I know you have a long history with Dillingham, too. Well, I'll just speak as a, as a young girl from Columbus, Ohio, going up to Alaska. It was quite a shock in 1978. Um, I arrived on the beach where my in-laws were running the sites. And the first tide that we had, we had over 4,000 red salmon in the nets. And I thought I had come from Ohio to some planet. I had no idea where I was. 
So I've come a long way since 1978, and I am the matriarch of my family um, on the beach. This was our 43rd Setnet summer. I fish on Ecuck Beach, and unlike Lindsay, who skiff fishes, we set net with trucks and come-alongs, and it's a totally different type of fishery, but one that lends itself really well to families and multi-generation. I teach my granddaughters, I have four granddaughters and one grandson, I'm teaching them the responsibility of being good fishers. And it's really fun and it's really hard work. Yeah, I wanted to go on into that. This is hard physical labor and it doesn't, um, it's not nine to five. So um, can you tell us, um, uh, it seems that you're all four women, uh, three, sorry. Um, and I understand there's quite a few women fishermen. I guess you call, do you call yourself fishermen or fisherwomen? Or is it just generic? I call myself a fisherman. I don't have a, any, I mean, I know that some, some women do call themselves fisherwomen, which is a great empowerment for them. But for me, it's a gender neutral term. Either way, huh? Sounds good. So what is the ratio of women up there, especially um, set netting and doing what you do as well, Lindsay? Yeah, I set net as well. Um, as Pam said, a little bit of a different type. I fish out of a boat along the beach um, versus with a truck pulling the net up the beach. So it's a little bit of a different technique, but we are both tethered to the beach, which is where the term set net comes from. Our net is, is set rather than drifting in the current. Um, and it is a lot of hard work. It's definitely a, a big chunk of physical labor, which I think as, as you two can probably relate to, we just kind of learn how to do when we're young and that's the expectation and the standard and, and we're used to it. Um, you know, I don't know now what the ratio of men to women is, I know that historically set netting has been more of a, of, it was more of like a woman's or the, the home job, you know, doing the subsistence and setting the net outside the cabin while the men were out drifting. Um, and that has, of course, dramatically evolved over the years. Um, there are a handful, though, of, of women, female captains in the industry that has just continuously grown over the last decade. And I have a, quite a few friends who captain their own operations and drift boats as well. Um, I'm one of the only female captains on my beach, but um, that's not to say that women are increasingly engaging in the fishery and taking a bigger role in, in running and owning and operating um, some businesses. What have you seen, Julie and Pam? I've seen over the years a, a greater number of women um, leading out and uh, being the uh, permit holders, which means that they're in charge of the delivery and, and making sure the decision-making of what's happening with the tides and the currents. Um, so it's exciting for me. It's not, uh, it's not unusual to see uh, plenty of women hustling on the beach. And it's a 24-hour process, right, Pam? Right. Um, the, we don't go by the clock. Well, we go by the tide. And uh, we set our nets out, um, depending on how high the tide is, at whatever time it is. So usually we'll have a week of night fishing and a week of day fishing, and then it just keeps rotating based on the tide. So we fish night or day. In Alaska, there's just a few hours that it's actually dark. So um, it's, it, that is an advantage to us. But um, it teaches my kids, it taught my kids that, you know, you just handle the job. 
you be responsible and you get the job done no matter what, what time it is or how hungry you are. You learn, right, Lindsay, you learn to be responsible for your product. And that is what we all strive to be, is extremely responsible for this priceless resource that we all are a part of. I'd like to ask Lindsay, um, you work for the United Tribes of Bristol Bay. You're not an indigenous woman, you're an ally. And how did you get involved and what do you do with, um, for your organization? Yeah, so, well, I guess I'll first start with just a little bit of background about you know, who the United Tribes of Bristol Bay are. United Tribes of Bristol Bay, or UTBB, is a tribal government consortium that um, has 15 member tribes throughout the Bristol Bay region. And those 15 member tribes make up about 80% of the in-region population of Bristol Bay. And our mission or our goal is to protect the indigenous way of life of the Yupik, Galutik, and Dena'ina people of Southwest Alaska, um, all of whom make up some of our member tribes. And I, I got involved in this work, you know, UTBB's mission, in addition to in protecting the way of life, is, is into, you know, preventing and stopping these hard, hard, hard rock, large scale metallic sulfide mines on like like the Pebble Project that we'll talk more about. Um, but I got into this work because I've always known about the threat of some of these massive development projects that um, could come into our region and, and disrupt critical salmon habitat and traditional culture um, and, and the lands and waters that the people of this region depend upon. So um, it just kind of came to be that when I moved back to Dillingham after college, um, uh, after working a, a job at our local health corporation, I found an employment opportunity um, with the tribal group here with UTBB and um, applied and it just, it kind of worked out that I was able to fill this role. And so for the last four years, I've been engaged with um, tribal leaders here in, in the Bristol Bay region, um, just working to protect their lands and waters that are under threat by this development. So. That's, that's, of course, a very brief overview of, of how I got engaged, but I've always known about this fight and this effort um, simply because it's been looming over our heads since, since I was a kid. But uh, to this point, yeah, just, just really grateful to have the opportunity to, to know and work alongside with some incredible leadership um, of Indigenous folks here in the region who, who are working really hard to protect their communities and their histories and, and culture. Well, I, I'm, as in my research, I'm seeing that the tribal um, communities and the commercial fishermen and women and um, the science communities have really been combining and connecting and, and being allies in this fight against Pebble Mine. And let's break down what Pebble Mine is so that the person out there, it's such a euphemistic word, Pebble Mine. It's just like this sweet little Pebble Mine, you know, it's like, so let's break it down and um, tell folks what it is. And, um, and Julie and Pam aren't activists, but they've been involved in fishing and they've been in that area. So I, I wouldn't mind having one of you guys just tell me what you tell the folks, what you know what's going on with Pebble Mine right now or where, what it is, what it is. Well, I'll, I'll launch this, this little definition uh, because my family and I have been flying right over the region that the Pebble Mine would go into for 43 years in our uh, Cessna 185. And it is right at the, at the headwaters of where all this uh, pristine ecosystem and the salmon run 
start or finish. And uh, the devastation to that region, and your listeners probably, you know, haven't actually seen the area. I'll tell you, when you fly over it and you imagine what it will look like and where it's placed, it just doesn't make any sense that anyone would consider putting a mine there and, um, and messing with this sustainable resource that we've had for so many years. What's your take, Julie? Well, my take is copper and gold uh, can be mined in many places. And um, to, to think about this being the only, or this is a optimal place to mine this in this, this area that, uh, that this only wild salmon run left uh, uh, travels to and disrupt what we have, the precious, the only precious run that we have left to even to to even have this in a in a discussion, it seems um, ludicrous. And uh, yeah. you know, they talk about the the you know the jobs that we produced, but looking at what re- the jobs really produced versus all the people that work in the salmon industry and the indigenous people that uh, fish for their livelihood, it it, it it doesn't make sense. No. And before I get I talk to Lindsay. I just want to let our folks know that this is Grassroot Ohio Radio. I'm Carolyn Harding, and we're WGRN.org. We stream worldwide. And I'm talking with Julia King, Pam Libby, and Lindsay Leyland. All three of them are commercial fisher um, women, and um, they're in the fight to protect Bristol Bay from the pebble mine that is um, in the works. And um, folks have been fighting it for quite a few years. Lindsay, why don't you tell us a little bit more, because you're in, you're working on this. Um, this is your career. Tell folks a little more what they need to know about Pebble Mine. Yeah, well, to start, I guess, with the most simplest explanation, there are, you know, as this, despite the fact that the proposed Pebble Mine is continually growing into a national and international issue, uh, many folks still don't know what it is. So, you know, the term pebble mine sounds like, why, like, sounds like you'd be a mine that mines pebble. That doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, but the pebble mine is a, is a gold, is a copper, molybdenum, and gold metallic sulfide mine, a proposed mine anyway. There's a large deposit, the headwaters of Bristol Bay. And pebble, actually, the name comes from Pebble Beach in California because folks looked at this landscape that the proposed mine site is and they thought that it looked like a golf course, uh, like Pebble Beach. And so it's, it's named the Pebble Mine because of this beautiful rolling hills and valleys and ecosystems um, and, and tundra landscape where the, where the mineral deposit sits um, just north of Lake Iliamna. So, uh, the, yeah, the, the Pebble Mine is a proposed massive, massive large-scale gold, copper, molybdenum mine that, if developed, would be along, among the largest open-pit mines um, in the nation, and, and if expanded beyond even further, eventually in the world. It, you know, currently one of the, the biggest elements of this is that it poses a tremendous threat to the downstream life, and that is, you know, human life, aquatic life, wildlife aviation, there's a lot of elements that this really pristine ecosystem in Southwest Alaska, the headwaters of, of, as Pam mentioned, the Bristol Bay watershed, 
um, the lakes and rivers and tributaries that drain from that area contribute to the world's greatest wild sockeye salmon return um, you know, that, that we've had for centuries and, and the last remaining one. And so there's a lot, there's a lot at stake um, for a project of this size to go forward with. Um, if it were developed, it would be, you know, it would include a lot of big elements like a seven, 70 foot, 700 foot tall tailings dam, which a tailings dam contains toxic waste and mineral waste that comes from the ground after, after they expose um, minerals and sulfide to the air. And they have to make a big dam that's going to store that material forever, which is a hard concept for us to grasp. Um, you know, it's in a really ecologically sensitive area. Uh, there's a lot of measures. They would have like a 340 megawatt power plant, which is, is like as big as the city of Fairbanks. Um, and it's just this really intense infrastructure that, that has big, big potential to damage um, the, the surrounding environment. So this um, um, pebble mine is proposed by a Canadian firm, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the company that owns it, uh, the, the Pebble Partnership is owned by Northern Dynasty Minerals, which is a Canada-based firm. Okay, and um, how's your governor, Pam? Is your governor for this or is, is the governor against it? Do you know? Yeah, the governor is very pro the Pebble Mine. He had a conversation with President Trump on Air Force One a few weeks ago, actually in June, for 20 minutes. And uh, then things started rolling for this, this project. So our governor is very pro-development. Okay, and um, so is Donald Trump, right? He, oh, right. He, he's pro-Pebble Mine, he's also pro-drilling in the Arctic Refuge. And the Tongass Rainforest. Right, okay, so where are we now in the fight? I know that um, there was an impact, let's see, uh, environmental impact statement released recently by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and where are we and how much power do the people have to stop this um, through the um, EPA? Let's, let's just break it down. Not too complicated, but tell us where we are right now with this fight, Lindsay. Yeah, so um, you know, the, the EIS that you mentioned, the environmental impact statement, that comes at the end of the permitting process that Pebble began uh, once President Trump took office. So once Trump was elected, the Pebble Partnership took that opportunity to finally, after 20 years of saying they would, of finally applying for a federal permit to develop this project. You know, fast forward two and a half, three years where we are now, um, through a really fast-tracked permitting process under the current administration, uh, the final EIS was released for the, for the Pebble Partnership and the proposed Pebble Mine, and that final environmental impact statement was, was pretty slim on uh, proper detail and scientific analysis, and it didn't have all of the elements that you would typically see in an environmental impact statement for a project of this size. So it was very, very concerning um, that, you know, experts and scientific and geologists and mining, mining executives and tribal leaders, they've all reviewed that document and, and comparing it to former EISs or final EISs say that it's simply not adequate. 
Um, how this relates to the EPA is that the Environmental Protection Agency actually has what's called 404C veto power or veto authority under the Clean Water Act. That section of law gives the EPA the authority to essentially withdraw this wetlands area from development for this type of project because of the adverse impacts that it would have to the surrounding environment. So the voice of the people right now is, is pretty huge, or it could be, um, and it continues to be, you know, for 20 years, the people of the region and, and the Pacific Northwest and across the country have been verbalizing their opposition to this project in support of Bristol Bay protections. Um, and that's really why there hasn't been a mine built right now, because of people like you and your sisters who, and, you know, the indigenous folks here in Bristol Bay who have been fighting and standing up year after year and saying, we don't want it, we don't want it, and fighting for their way of life and their jobs and their culture. So, um, yeah, for people to right now ask the EPA, provide comment, provide written letter, contact leadership and say, we need the EPA to step in and invoke what's called 404C veto authority with the pebble permit is, is critical. Lindsay, we have like two minutes left. Um, what can people like Julie in California, Pam in Alaska, mm -hmm. we have our social contacts, me in Ohio. Um, I know your website, um, United Tribe yeah. of Bristol Bay, utbb.org. Yeah, utbb.org. Has a lot of information and a lot of asks of what people can do to really protect Bristol Bay. What else can folks like us do? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I know we'll keep this really short. Um, UTBB.org is a great resource. There are other pages like Trout Unlimited, Save Bristol Bay, Defend Bristol Bay that you can find on Facebook. We're, we're also gonna have all these links and resources available to direct people where to go to take action. And I know this sounds like a pitch, but donating to these organizations is always helpful when it comes down the line, if we're going to have to engage in a legal battle, or we're going to have to engage in grassroots organizing to continue this fight. So those efforts, among others, are huge. All right. This could go, we could have an engaging conversation probably for two hours. Mm -hmm. But I have my last question to you all three is farmed salmon versus wild salmon. What's the big deal? We have a saying, friends don't let friends eat farmed salmon. And I think <laughs> that basically says it all. I think so too. Well, listen, thank you so much. Let's all stand up. We'll fight back. We'll share this with all our friends and it'll be on our podcast on, eight, on Apple. It'll be on YouTube under Grassroot Ohio. And let's get the word out and let's make sure that Pebble Mine does not, does not pollute beautiful Bristol Bay. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Carolyn. You, thank Carolyn. Thank you. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back. Come down, come down.